All right, well, it's good to be back with everybody tonight to pick up where we left off from last week's study in the Gospel of John. We are in Lesson 2, the presentation of the Son of God, covering John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the end of the second chapter, John 2, verse 25. So um, it's a lot of verses to cover, and as you guys have probably seen if you flip through the workbook on your own, we're going to be covering big chunks of Scripture throughout the totality of this study. So we're certainly not going to say everything that could be said about these passages, but Lord willing, we'll be able to get to the meat and potatoes of what God the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write some 2,000 years ago. So tonight, with, with that in mind, as we approach this big chunk of Scripture, let's read the passage together. I have it divided into nine parts. Let's see. I guess ten parts, actually. So ten readers... Breaking up this large portion of scripture to get us started tonight. So, can I get a volunteer to read verses 19 to 24 of John 1? All right, Hannah's going to do that. After she reads that passage, can I get another volunteer to read verses 25 to 30? Perfect. I saw a hand go up over here. You can take 31 to 36 of chapter 1. Verses 37 to 42. We'd like to take that chunk. Perfect. Verses 43 to 48 of chapter 1. Wayne will take that. Very good. Verses 49 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Perfect. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Perfect. Um, I think I saw Jacob's hand go up too. You can take verses 10 to 15 of chapter 2. Verses 16 to 21 of chapter 2. Very good. And then I'll take the last ones from verses 22 to 25 to wrap up that portion of Scripture. So Hannah, kick us off, and then everybody just fill in. As soon as they finish, you can cover. Uh, She was having, I believe, 31 to 36. Everybody good on passages? All right, good deal. Let's get going. Hannah, kick us off. baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me.
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You know, as we come to consider the presentation of the Son of God during our time together this evening, I'm struck by... Really, that question that Nathaniel asked right back in verse 46 of chapter 1, he, he asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Just kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question, like what, what good thing can come out of uh, such an unimpressive place? And Philip says, come and see. 
And I think that is a good heading for where we're going to be going over the course of our time together tonight. Come and see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come see from the text of Scripture how this, by worldly standards, unimpressive man from an unimpressive place is truly God, truly man, and accomplished everything in his life to enable us to have a right standing with our holy creator through faith in him. You you notice there under the drawing near heading, right at the top of page 11, third question, or I guess third, um, it's really not a question, but third area where there's place for you to fill in your own thoughts. It says, ask God to give you deeper insights into Jesus's identity as you begin this study. That's my prayer for tonight, and hopefully every week as well it would be all of our prayers, that we would want to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, that we would want to come and see the risen Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So with that in mind, uh, at the outset of where we're going to be headed tonight in our lesson, notice the first question right underneath the drawing near heading, right there on page 11 at the top. The question says this, what aspects of Jesus's identity mean the most to you right now and why? So when we when we consider the thought of of seeing Christ reflecting on who he is as revealed to us in Scripture, what is it that stands out to you most regarding Christ's identity? What would you say? Always Always speaks the truth. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's Jesus. Epitome of truth. What other attributes? His sinlessness. His perfection. Um, the theological term, the impeccability of Christ. He was without sin and he could not sin because he was truly God and truly man. Absolutely great. Any other attributes or characteristics of Christ that stand out to you tonight? He's, yeah, he, he forgives. He's gracious. He's merciful. Unchanging, right? Hebrews 13, I believe it's verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How about his lordship? You know, that's something that Nick stresses pretty much on a weekly basis. I know I've only been here for two months, but I've heard him stress it again and again and again, both from the pulpit and in our own personal conversations that Christ is Lord over everything in creation. Doesn't matter how chaotic things might be. Doesn't matter how much the wicked might seem to prosper in this life and in this world. Jesus is the reigning, resurrected King of Kings, Lord of Lords, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess someday. And he is so much in control that he can even use the worst circumstances in our lives and in this world to accomplish the eternal good of his people and the supreme glory of Him, His Father, and the Holy Spirit. Any other thoughts on characteristics that stand out to you about Christ? Sovereignty, yeah, absolutely. Good dovetail, I'm glad we're on the same page. Lordship, sovereignty definitely go hand in hand. Okay, so... These are some very good attributes of Christ. And of course, as I mentioned by way of introduction, we're not going to be able to say everything that could ever be said about Christ or about the passage that we're going to be focusing on. We're trying to hit the main points, but I appreciate the group involvement. Let's talk now, second question there under the drawing near heading. Let's talk about the questions we might have about Christ. I'm sure that 
there's at least one person here tonight that has questions about who Jesus was during his earthly life, what he's like now in the heavenly places. I'll go ahead and share what I wrote down for this question. What does it look like for Jesus to intercede for his people at the Father's right hand? We know that he's doing that. Romans 8, 33, 34, Hebrews 7, 25. Christ ever lives to make intercessions for his people. But how does that, how does that really look, right? That, that's a mystery that I don't think Scripture gives us any mechanics or step-by-step explanation of how he does that. But we know he does that. That's, that's a question that came to my mind for this study. What about you guys? What questions about Christ's identity, whether in the past or um, in the present, uh, comes to mind for you? Right, yeah, he, we, we know that he was not married. We have no evidence in Scripture that he was. So. But what would, that have been, what would that have been like as a, as a sinless man to, to be in a world that's marred by sin, to see marriage as a very good thing that God instituted in creation, but to not actually engage in that marriage? Predominantly because the bride of Christ is who is going to be married to him for eternity. But still, that would have been kind of interesting maybe to, to hear what Christ's perspective was on that. We don't get that insight in Scripture per se, but very interesting thought. I think about like what the Old Testament says about him, um, like being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, no form, no majesty, mm. and like how that fits with being God, with being Christ. Right. Um, makes me wonder like how that works. Oh, together. for sure. The, the the union of the human nature and the divine nature, right? We know that Christ is one person, but he has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. How does that work, right? I mean, theologians have spent almost 2,000 years now trying to plumb the depths of that reality. And we're never going to be able to scratch the surface of it because we're finite. And some truths about Christ are just too big, too incomprehensible for us to get our minds around. That's very good, Meredith. Um, Definitely a, a good question about how how those human emotions would, would factor in with his divine nature. Any other thoughts? Okay. Well, my prayer, guys, is that um, if you ever have any questions, like, like you know, we, we just opened up the floor for some discussion here. Maybe we go on in five minutes and something comes to mind. You have a question or a comment that you feel led to share. Feel free to... Kind of say, hey, I, I wanted to say this earlier. It just came to mind now, though, and I uh, would like to hear your thoughts on this. Or, of course, after the lesson, you're always welcome to share thoughts with, with um, of course, me, Nick, or uh, any of the members of the study. So hope that everybody feels comfortable sharing over the course of our time together. But in any case, let's move on now to the context. Bottom of page 11. The context. I'm going to read this paragraph and ask a question that came to my mind that I think is really important for us as believers today. Facing critics and opponents to Christianity, particularly about the trustworthiness of Jesus' life and his existence and many number of other issues pertaining to the reliability of Scripture. So let me read this paragraph and hopefully have some good discussion about this question that I had in mind. MacArthur notes, following his deeply theological prologue, referring to verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1, 
John introduces the first of many witnesses to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. This is the main theme of his gospel, as we see in chapter 20, verse 31. First, we see John the Baptist giving testimony on three different days to three different audiences. These events took place in AD 26 to 27, just a few months after John's baptism of Jesus. Next, we find the record of Jesus' first public miracle, changing water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This astounding sign was another powerful witness, the first of eight confirming miracles chosen by John, that pointed unmistakably to Jesus' deity. Finally, John's account of Jesus cleansing the temple in righteous indignation was added proof of Christ's deity and messiahship. The incident demonstrated Jesus' passion for God's house to be honored and his promised power of resurrection. So that's a flyover of of what all of those verses are about that we read together. We're going to unpack that a little bit now as we go through each subsequent section here in our chapter tonight. But I want to start here. I think this is important. Maybe it's because I like to study apologetics that this came to my mind, but I think this is important regardless of if you're bent towards that particular study. My question for us to consider is this. In light of what John MacArthur notes about the context of tonight's passage, how would you respond to the claim that there's no evidence to confirm that Jesus even existed or that he performed any miracles? So how do you respond to that? You kids see it on social media. If you're in public school, you hear it at school from a student or a coach or a teacher. How do you really know that Jesus even existed? And even if he did exist, do you really believe he performed any miracles? I mean, that sounds like a fairy tale. Or if you're an adult, you have unbelieving friends, family members, co-workers. How, how do you respond to that? I'll give you a hint. Somebody open up to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. Hopefully this will get us on a good track to consider. Who wants to read that passage in 1 Corinthians 15? Go for it. Oh, that's good. That's it. Okay, so what what is that passage saying? Of course, in the verses prior to the ones we just read, it it gets into the gospel. Um, But the crux that I wanted us to focus on in relation to my question is verses 5 to 8 that Nick read. What what were those verses getting at there? 500 witnesses that saw the resurrected Christ, right? And presumably those people who saw the resurrected Christ probably had some familiarity with Christ over the course of his earthly ministry. Who else does it say that he appeared to? The apostles, right? And those men were intimately acquainted with Christ throughout the course of his earthly ministry. They knew everything... I I guess I should say it better like this. They knew about as much as Christ as any living person has ever known about Christ. Because they were literally with him throughout the duration of his 
basically three to three and a half year earthly ministry. So what's the significance? Let's, let's land the plane now, okay? We know he's got 12 men, 13 um, if you include Matthias. So 13 men who are big A apostles, the 11, Paul and Matthias. You have 15, or excuse me, 500 rather, 500 other people who saw Christ's resurrection and likely had familiarity with his earthly ministry. And then we have the whole New Testament, which bears witness to these things that would have been in circulation throughout the Roman Empire during the first century. What does that do for us when we try to answer the question of, well, how do we know Jesus really existed? How do we know he performed any miracles? What do you say in response based on what we've just discovered? It's always good for the pastor to, to have a perspective. If, if you're dealing with a reasonable person who accepts any sort of historical anything, okay, some people you're not dealing with anything reasonable, so you might as well do something else. But uh, <laughs> if you're dealing with that type of person, that take the apostles starting out, and most of the apostles believe this so much, they all die for Amen. So you take that and you have to say that you, there is some historical evidence to these things. And then you look at the, then you start to look at church history mm. and the people that have died for I mean the church history is death of the saints, okay, Amen. for the sake of the gospel. Right? That's a miracle in itself, okay. The fact that we're here is a miracle in itself. So mm. that's that's kind of the practical side to it. You know, people believe this so much they die for it. People believe stuff they die for all the time. Muslims do. But that this has survived through everything that has been through for 2,000 years, where there were other movements that were just as grounded and strong as you can say Christianity was, but yet this has still survived and thrived, even though people have been killed for it. Okay? That's the, I'm going to call it the more practical side. The spiritual side is, it, is the fact that people, every people in this room, people, millions of people, Amen. That was that was better than what I was going to say. I didn't. I guess I, I must have focused too much on the natural, not the the supernatural. Um, that was brilliant response. The gist, guys. Nick Nick hit the nail right on the head. The gist is this: Christ was seen by real people. The New Testament documents that we have, they they didn't just exist in a vacuum. Like they were being circulated throughout the Roman Empire. People had them in their homes, in their churches. They read them. They could point out to people in the marketplace and say, hey, look at that guy over there. He was one of the ones that was with Jesus. And they couldn't squelch the story of Christ or the miracles of Christ because there were too many witnesses to bear first-hand account of everything that he was and everything that he did. And as Nick said, the end result is that we have 2,000 years of men and women who have literally given their life for the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the truth of God's word, the truth about who Jesus was. And of course, we also know spiritually, and if you're here tonight and you're a believer, 
You have the evidence of your transformed life to bear witness to the reality of who Jesus is, what he did, that scripture's true about his life and ministry. That makes sense. I just want you guys to know the Bible didn't just pop up in a vacuum and and, and it was in a small little corner of the first century world. The, The letters that we have, the gospel records that we have, they were written by people who had firsthand access to Jesus. They were known by thousands in the Roman Empire community. And their writings were spread abroad far and wide and continue to be done so to this day. Hopefully that gives you a little bit food for thought if you ever hear the allegation that, well, we really just can't know that Jesus existed. We, we really just have no basis for believing any of this stuff. It's all fairy tale. No, it's, his, it's history. Real people at a real place at a real time. That's what we're dealing with here. Well, let's move over to page 2 now, or page 12 now, page 2 in the section that we're in, 12 in your workbooks. There are two paragraphs under the heading Son of God, and then there is a paragraph associated with the heading Messiah. And these are what MacArthur calls keys to the text. So these are central themes of the passage that we've read together tonight. Can I get a volunteer to read the first paragraph associated with the Son of God heading? Somebody wants to take that first paragraph for us. All right, Seth's so going to take it. And then uh, a second volunteer to read the second paragraph associated with that heading. Greg will take that, and then I'll read the one about Messiah. So uh, go ahead, Seth, kick us off. Son of God, there are two basic events in relation to which Jesus Christ is son, his virgin birth and his resurrection. He was not a son until he was born into this world through the virgin birth. In describing one of the predictions of this birth, Luke says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Sonship of Christ is inextricably connected with His incarnation. Only after Christ's incarnation did God say, This is my Son. His Sonship came before one in His resurrection. This deep truth all makes clear in the book of Romans. Concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 1, 3 through 10. He became a son at birth. He was declared to be a son of resurrection. Very good. So how many guys, how many of you guys in here tonight have heard about the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection. Show of hands first. Virgin birth. <laughs> Who here has heard about that? I think everybody has. Okay. How about the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Okay. Are those two beliefs, are they no big deal or are they pretty big deal in regards to Christianity? Pretty big deal, right? I, I would say a, a major deal, Right? Okay, so let's stop and think about these for a second here. Why do you think the virgin birth of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ is so important to our faith? We've all heard about these truths, right? 
We celebrate them every year, Christmas, Easter, hopefully every Sunday in between as well when we come to worship together on Sundays. But let's really get down to business here about these two doctrines, these two central beliefs about our faith. And let's ask the question, why are they so important? Amen. And, how, and just to build off of that, first off, did everybody hear what Hannah said? She said that the virgin birth and the resurrection testifies to Jesus being God, to his deity, that he's not just a mere man. Um, and how, do, how would you say that that happens? It's miraculous. Yeah, that, I think that's a very good way of putting it. Any other thoughts on those doctrines? Yes. People prophesied it. So the, the truthfulness of God's word is contingent upon those doctrines being true. Excellent. We would, our whole religion would be false. We would not have any, like Christianity would not be Christianity. It was not for birth, birth, incarnation, and all of that. Amen. It's all very good. These are all great. I, I'm glad that you guys stole my notes before tonight's study that, uh, you know, we're all on the same page. Just, that, just kidding. Now, I'm not very good at cracking jokes in the middle of a lesson. I try. I haven't really mastered the art. So, um, you know, let me let me throw this in there, too. Um, the virgin birth also establishes the sinlessness of Christ. Christ is sinless because he did not come forth from the seed of man, but the, as it were, the seed of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So the sinlessness of Christ is, a, is an entailment of the virgin birth. And um, as Wayne said, the bodily resurrection of Christ, it signifies his victory over sin and death. It's inextricably linked to our justification, Romans 4.25. But it also is the promise... That you and I are someday going to be resurrected to glorified eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. You can find that all documented and described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 58. Don't have time to read that passage, but if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to read that at some point tonight or maybe throughout the rest of this week. Because it's really a masterful treatment of Paul where he connects Christ's resurrection to the resurrection that his people will experience Someday, And of course, about Christ's sinlessness, um, Romans 5, 14 to 19 and Galatians 4, 4 through 5 are also good passages to go to for that as well. Now, follow up question. Cash already stole the thunder here, but just to make sure you were paying attention. Is it possible to willfully deny the bodily resurrection of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ and be saved? I want to hear somebody who's not a deacon or pastor answer that question. Can you willfully reject the sinless or sinlessness, throw that in there, the uh, virgin birth of Christ, which entails the sinlessness of Christ? Can you willfully reject that and be a Christian? Let's start there. What do you all think? Very good. All right. Emphatic no. Cash said it 
perfectly earlier. You have a different Christianity. You have a different Jesus. You have a different gospel if you reject the virgin birth. Now, what about the bodily resurrection of Christ? Can you reject that and be a Christian? Be saved? Exactly. Can't be. Different Christianity, different gospel, different Jesus. Those are foundational to our faith. We should be willing to die for such truths. With that, let me read this little excerpt next to the heading Messiah, and then we'll, we'll move on to some more of the questions that MacArthur poses for us in our workbooks. Messiah, the one anointed by God and empowered by God's Spirit to deliver His people and establish His kingdom. In Jewish thought, the Messiah would be the king of the Jews, a political leader who would defeat their enemies and bring in a golden era of peace and prosperity. In Christian thought... The term Messiah refers to Jesus' role as a spiritual deliverer, setting his people free from sin and death. The word Messiah comes from a Hebrew term that means anointed one. Its Greek counterpart is Christos, from which the word Christ comes. Now, let me just share a, a, a just very briefly a, a funny story about me growing up. It'll really bear witness to the fact that I wasn't raised in a solid church. So if you are in uh, a solid church right now and you're a young man or woman, be sure to thank God for that reality because I certainly wasn't growing up. But when I, was, when I was a kid, even into my teenage years, I used to think that Christ was Jesus's last name. How about them apples? And I, you know, I had no, you did too? Yeah. So see, I, I, I thought that his name was first name Jesus, last name Christ. But uh, in case, and it's okay if you're young and that's you and you're thinking that, it's good. We're going to correct that misconception. We really don't know what Jesus' last name was. Uh, historically, he's referred to as Jesus of, of Nazareth because he's from Nazareth. But Christ is a title. It's who he is. That's what that paragraph was getting at there. Does that make sense? I know most of you guys knew that already. But in case there was one or two of you all that didn't know, you just know that you weren't alone. I, I was where you were at at some point. So we'll move on now. Page 16, get into some more of these discussion questions. Page 16, and as you can see, I had to type some of my responses here because I couldn't fit them in the three lines of space that were given to respond to. And I write pretty small, so they probably could have given us more space. Um, Number one, in what ways were the Jews confused by the appearance of John the Baptist. And just to give you guys the key text, I'll reread the verse. It's John 1.25. This really, in a nutshell, shows that there was a lot of confusion by the Jews as to who John the Baptist was. John 1.25. The Jews asked John the Baptist, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah nor the prophet. Okay, so there's, there's three people, three identities, you could say, that the Jews speculated John the Baptist to potentially be. He could have been any of these three identities, according to the Jews. Were you all paying attention? What were the three again? John one twenty five, Christ? Elijah. Elijah the prophet. prophet. All right. Now, let's, let's open the floor for a group discussion. Why do you think that confusion existed? 
Yeah. Thought that, thought that baptism uh, could have been a means of salvation. Could certainly be a, a, a way of um, con, con, being confused over who John the Baptist was or what his purpose was, if you will. Any other thoughts? Oh, yeah, they were very confused. Um, there'd been a lot of man-made rituals and traditions that had crept into Jewish religious practice at this point in history. Let's camp there. I like that. He was gone for a while, right? And then he appeared and started his ministry, correct? Who's that? John. Well, he, he, he just, he just came. Wilderness? Well, he went into the wilderness, but that was, that was kind of kicking off his, okay. his ministry. Okay, so I was like, and then he just started showing up, baptizing people. And... Well, it's interesting. They actually, they went to him. They wanted to go see the show. Even the relig- Jewish religious leaders went to John the Baptist to say, hey, man, what's this guy all about here? And he gave the... Uh, depending on if you're a believer or an unbeliever at the time, either famous or infamous statement, you brood of vipers. Uh, let that be a lesson learned. Uh, sometimes calling people brood of vipers doesn't go over too well. Um, but in any case, it's neither here nor there. Let's think about this, though. Why would they have expected the Christ, the Messiah? What was, what, what was significant about this time in history? Okay, I'll give you the answer because that's probably a tough question. How many of you guys are familiar with the prophecy in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27? The 70 weeks prophecy about the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. Okay, let me explain that to you. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27, context. Daniel's prophesying about the future of Israel while the Jews are in Babylonian captivity. And in this prophecy, Daniel declares that at some point following Israel's release from captivity, there was going to be a decree made to rebuild Jerusalem. Temple, the whole whole shebang. There's going to be a, uh, a revival of Jerusalem, as it were, both in its civil life and in its religious life. We know from the text of Ezra 7, verses 11 to 28, that the decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, it occurred in 457 B.C. So in 457 B.C., we have the, the decree made by King Artaxerxes that there's going to be a reconstruction of Jerusalem and a revival of that city and a revival of its religious life. Now... In the Hebrew text of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the so-called 70 weeks prophecy, the way that the wording is constructed in Hebrew, it's worded in such a way that the 70 weeks is actually 70 sevens. So one day is equated to one year and one week is equated to seven years. So if you look at uh, 70 weeks and each week is 70 years, The prophecy that Daniel is giving is a 490 year period of time between the 457 B.C. decree by King Artaxerxes and when this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. Now, verse 25 of Daniel 9. 
it said that the Messiah will come after the 69th week has passed. So 69 sevens, 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple, and all the rest. Well, what happens when you add 483 years to 457? You get the year 2680. And what was significant about the year 26 AD that we read in the introduction? It's likely when John the Baptist began his ministry in the wilderness. So think about this, guys. The Jews knew their Old Testament. Yes, they made a bunch of man-made traditions and rituals, and they really perverted the Word of God in many ways. But they also knew their Bibles. Many of the Jewish uh, religious leaders had the Old Testament memorized. And they knew that come 26 AD, the Messiah is coming onto the scene. And then there's this crazy guy out in the wilderness calling the religious elite brood of vipers, preaching a message of repentance, baptizing people, telling them, get ready. Get ready for the Messiah. He's coming. And in the midst of all this confusion, they're asking, are you the Christ? It's time. You certainly fit the mold. You're unlike anyone that we've seen around here in quite some time. And the timing's got to line up. And he said, no, I'm the forerunner. Right? We learned a little bit about that last week. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. Malachi 3, 1 to 3. Malachi 4, 1 to 6. Those are the key Old Testament prophecies about the one who would precede the Messiah. So, why is there confusion here? Put yourself in their shoes. Messiah's coming. We're in the 69th week of Daniel's 70 weeks vision. This guy must be the Christ. Well, he's not the Christ, okay? So John the Baptist says, nope, I'm not the Christ. Let's look at Elijah now. I just gave you all the prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi. It was expected that Elijah would be a reincarnate forerunner for the Messiah who was to come. That was believed throughout Judaism at this time. Elijah's going to come again, and he's going to come before the Messiah, and that's how we're going to know that he's here. Well, what did we learn last week about John the Baptist? Is he literally Elijah? We kind of just touched on it here in our passage for tonight. Is John the Baptist literally Elijah reincarnate? Yes. No, he's not Elijah reincarnate. Um, However, Luke... 117, it is said that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Matthew 11, 11 to 15, as we belabored last week, for those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, John the Baptist functions in the role of Elijah, that forerunner of the Messiah who was to come. And then third, the prophet. This one was a little bit weird. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you probably were like, well, what what is this? The prophet. I thought there was a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. Well, the prophet is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. And in that context, Israel is about to enter the land of Canaan. Moses is about to die. And God promises Israel that he's going to raise up a great prophet like Moses to be his chief spokesperson. And though John the Baptist certainly was a great prophet, we know from Acts 3, 22 and 23 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18 prophecy. But I know I just opened up the fire hydrant for you guys. 
But here's the gist of what I want you to take away. There is a reason why people thought John the Baptist was these three identities, these three figures, if you will. Because the timing of the Messiah's arrival was imminent. There had not been anybody like John the Baptist for about 450 years up to this point. You have the intertestamental period. You have the closing of the Old Testament some 450 years prior to John the Baptist. And then this guy comes out. to He speaks with authority. He's baptizing people. He's calling people to repentance. Surely this man is one of these people. And of course, as we know from the text that we read tonight, he wasn't any of those three, literally. Elijah, you could say spiritually. But he was just the forerunner. And that is a good segue into number two. Well, before we do, though, is there any questions? I just gave you a lot. But if we don't, I know that I was preparing this message. I knew the Daniel 9 thing would be a lot. But guys, you've got to know why there was an expectation. This is real history, real people. They were looking and longing for their Messiah to come. And God's faithful. He fulfilled the Daniel 70 prophecy to a T. He fulfilled it. And he always fulfills his promises. Okay, but number two. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus says, if if you're if you're willing to accept it, then John the Baptist was Elijah, and he's right. Yeah, right, right. And that's and that's why, like last week, um, my, I was I was thinking, man, like, am I really belaboring something not worth belaboring? But now that you bring that up, that that is a key alleged discrepancy in the New Testament. They'll say, well, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah and John the Baptist said that he wasn't Elijah. So look, the Bible contradicts itself. And um, I'll repeat what I said last week. I believe uh, in in history testifies. It's the way Christians have reconciled that. Um, When Jesus throws in that caveat, if you're willing to believe it or if you're willing to accept it or if you're willing to bear it, whatever your translation says, he's saying that if if you have trusted in me, and, and then John the Baptist is fulfilling the role that Elijah fulfills, which is the, the role of prophet, the, the role of, of proclaiming um, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God. That, that's the way that that text has typically been um, interpreted, especially in light of the Luke one seventeen passage, when it explicitly says he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Um, just kind of interpreting scripture with scripture. That's how, that's how um, a lot of people have gone about trying to reconcile those texts. But very good. Number two, um, what insights into John the Baptist's character do we see in tonight's passage? What, what, what do you take away regarding his personality? What stood out to you from the passage? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had three, not to say that my three are the only three, but that was one of my three. Humility, certainly. What other observations can we make from the text? Yeah, matter of fact, honest, straightforward. Um, yeah, verses 19 to 23. 
He doesn't try to pretend to be somebody that he isn't. He's very open, very straightforward. Not the Christ. He was content. What else do we see? And I think this is an entailment of what Amy was saying, too. Um, there's one more key one that I saw, verses 29 to 34, when he continually declares the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, identifying Jesus as such. What do you think that shows from John the Baptist? God is gracious. Yeah, God is gracious. That's, that's certainly true of, of the message there. Um, but regarding John the Baptist from, from that particular set of verses, what do we see? Mm. Yeah. Humility. Yeah. I put boldness down. I mean, again, not saying that's the best adjective for that. The reason I put boldness down for those verses. Again, think about what Nathaniel asked. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Who's this guy? The Lamb of God? Are you kidding me? This guy? This carpenter over here? You want to talk about boldness? To, to proclaim in the midst of the Jewish religious elite, that man right there, he's God's son. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Him. Boldness. He preached the truth. He was unashamed. You look like you want to say something. Well, just uh, courage there. Mm. That's great. Very good. We've spent a lot of time looking at John the Baptist. Let's look at a little bit of Christ's um, portrayal here from the viewpoint of Philip. Look at verses 43 to 46 again. Uh, The key text, though, is verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How did Philip view Jesus, and why is that significant? And you'll notice there underneath that question on page 17 in your workbook, there are some verses to consider. Let's look at those texts together. Why did Philip say what he said about Jesus. Let's see the context. Let's look at the Old Testament. Who wants to read Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 to get us started? All right, Seth's going to take that. Luke 24, 44, and 47. Michael, take that one, buddy. Uh, Acts 10, 43. Yes, sir. I appreciate that, my man. Acts 18, 28. Thank you, bro. Acts 26, 22 to 23. Thank you. Romans 1, 2, which we already read earlier, but we'll read it again. It's just one verse. Acts, or Romans 1, 2, rather. Phoenix. Thank you, sir. I'll take 1 Corinthians 15, 
3 through 4 on my end. Whenever you're ready for Deuteronomy, kick it off, brother. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, my, I myself will, will require it of him. Very good. That's the text, that Deuteronomy 18 prophecy about the, the, the prophet that God would raise up. That's what I was referring to that we just read, uh, just for clarification. Mike, you take Luke uh, 24 for us, buddy. Uh, just read verse 44 and then read verse 47. Appreciate it. Acts ten forty three. Amen. Thank you, bro. 1828. Thank you, sir. 26, 22, and 23. Excellent. Romans 1, 2. All right. In my text, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay. It's the Old Testament. Uh, and then the New Testament passages referring back to the Old Testament Scriptures. So, start with the first part of the question. What was Philip's assessment of Jesus, as we saw in verse 45? I want to hear somebody articulate that for us. John He was prophesied about. It's exactly right. Now, why is that significant? Jesus is the one being prophesied in all of the Old Testament. That's what Philip's saying. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one the whole Old Testament is picturing. Why should that matter to us? Why is that significant for us? Yeah. exactly right he has already came right we're, we're on the other side of the cross two thousand years later the jews are still looking for their messiah he's already came this is the one come and see right what philip said there come and see him see him in scripture 
Consider what he does in history. What about the faithfulness of God? What does that, what does that do for the faithfulness of God? He, he wrote, he inspired all that was written in the Old Testament, right? All those prophecies, all those pictures, all those foreshadows in the Messiah. And then here he is. And then, of course, we know the rest of the New Testament explains in further detail the significance of what Jesus accomplished. But how do we see the faithfulness of God in all that? The trustworthiness of God. Does Scripture ever fail? No, right? Does God ever, does he ever fail to keep his promises? Can we trust him? Absolutely we can. We've got a whole Old Testament that, shows, that said Christ is coming. New Testament said he's here. We have everything that we need to be able to trust God, to be able to know him through faith in Christ, and to be able to have confidence that he was everything he claimed to be. And he's everything that you could ever need spiritually. It still shows that. Oh, for sure. Certainly. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. No, you're right. He's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Hebrews 13, 8 passage. I think it's 13, 8. I hope I'm not misquoting that. It's in Hebrews 13. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in verse 8. Anyways, uh, I guess uh, I didn't go to Awana growing up, so that's why I'm a little rusty on my, my verse memorization. Again, a bad joke. We'll move on. Um, going deeper, um, the Old Testament often illuminates events in the New Testament says that we need to read Exodus 12, verses 1 to 14 for more understanding of the Jewish Passover. I'm going to read that text. I, I can read it pretty swiftly for us. And hopefully you read this before you came tonight. Um, because, when we again, we spent a lot of time belaboring the identity of Christ and the Jewish expectation that he was coming as declared throughout the Old Testament with regard to the Daniel 9 prophecy. But when we speak of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's not just some blanket statement that John the Baptist gives. No, it actually has a purpose. It's rooted in the Old Testament, and it has a redemptive historical significance in light of Christ coming into the world that we as Christians can look back on and say, God was faithful to everything foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Christ fulfilled it all. Praise be to God. Let me read that passage about the Passover lamb, and then we'll apply it to Jesus as we find here in our workbooks. Exodus 12, 1 and following. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, you... Excuse me. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate the Passover as a permanent ordinance. That's the Passover. In a nutshell, there's going to be a lamb sacrificed for each family of the nation of Israel. They're going to take that lamb's blood and they're going to put it on the doorpost of their house and the lintel of their house, and they're going to eat of that lamb quickly in a particular manner with reverence, and then they're going to burn in fire whatever is left over. It's a sacred meal. It's going to be practiced for generations to come, says God, and it's going to be a sign of judgment against the nation of Israel to deliver Israel from Egyptian captivity. Now, number four in our workbook, in light of that Old Testament historical backdrop, how does Jesus Christ fit John's description as the Lamb of God? And how does His sacrifice parallel the Old Testament Passover? He was without blemish. He was without blemish. Exactly right. It's excellent. Jesus was without sin. He was sinless. He was perfect in every respect. That's a picture there of Christ. It's His blood that saves us, right? Think about it, my friends. Just as the people of Israel were spared from the judgment of God, His judgment, as it were, passing over their house on the basis of that that lamb's blood being on their house's doorpost and lintel. So also, my friend, if you're in Christ tonight, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith alone, God's wrath for your sin passes over you because the blood of the Lamb, His only Son, Jesus Christ, has covered you. It's washed you. It's made you white as snow, though your, skin, though your sin be like scarlet. And as a result, God's judgment, His wrath, it passes over you. You're forgiven. And of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament, you're also credited with Christ's righteousness. So you're not just forgiven of your sins. But you're also treated by God as if you lived his perfect life without sin. The great exchange, double imputation. All those beautiful truths that we find in the New Testament. Any other thoughts on number four? Would they not have fully understood when he said the whole of God when he was talking to the Jews? Going back to the Passover. I mean, that was, that was a connection they could not renew. Amen. Well, it's like when Jesus, you know, when he was crucified, was on the Day of Atonement. So, yes, absolutely, to your question, they would have absolutely known what he was saying. And that's boldness for John. We get back to courage, boldness, that, that theme we were talking about earlier. For John the Baptist to say, 
He is the Lamb of God. That unimpressive carpenter from Nazareth. That man is the Lamb of God. And people, the, the, the self-righteous Jewish religious officials would have said, Who do you think you are? That is ridiculous. He's not a, he's not a Messiah. He's not our Messiah. That guy? Really? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Wayne. Absolutely right. Yeah, from Nazareth. You were talking what? about the blood of Christ. I mean, covers us. But then earlier, you had asked, um, was at the very beginning, what does um, Him interceding in heaven look like for us? And I was like, for me, I kind of picture it. it might be a little gory, but like our blood, His blood is covering us. So mm. when He looks at us, He sees Christ, and so He's able to forgive us, or just what that process might look mm. like. No, it's beautiful. Yes. So, I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about who they thought that Ron Baptist was, and they they thought that he could do it. So, like, I just don't understand why they would think, okay, he could be the Christ, but, like, when Jesus literally declared to them, that's who I am, they were like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, they were expecting it. Yeah. I can't wrap my No, that's a that's a great question. I think I, I think I know where the answer is. It's actually, I believe, in John's gospel. Um, No, you're. So let me let me start by saying this. Um, in John eleven, we're going to get here, Hannah. Um, it's right after when Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. He um, he calls himself the resurrection and the life. I haven't prepared to teach on this text. I don't remember if this was happen- I don't remember if it happened on a Sabbath day. But it is said that in John 11:53 from that day on they planned together to kill Christ. And if you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, we can talk about this um, after I have some more time to look into it. But Jesus took a frontal assault on the Jewish religious system that had been erected by man-made tradition. And when Christ began doing miracles on the Sabbath, and when he began to call out the hypocrisy and the corruption of the Jewish religious leaders, they took offense to him. And the people that grew up around him took offense to him. Who do you think you are challenging our authority, saying that we're accountable to you? Um, There was a very real vendetta against Christ because he continually testified to him being Lord over the Sabbath 
to him being Lord over all of Jewish religion. And that was a threat to the religious leaders of his day. And to Amy's point, um, as we know, we'll, we'll talk about this actually when we get to John 3, Lord willing, next week. Unless the Spirit of God gives you eyes to see Christ for who he is, people are going to reject him anyways. Because people love their sin more than they love God's right to rule over their life. Um, so a lot of this we're going to talk about in future weeks. But that's a very good question. Why, why John the Baptist and not Jesus? Um, well, we also know from divine sovereignty uh, perspective that God purposed for them to respond to Jesus that way. Um, so there's a lot of inner workings here that we're going to be able to untangle, hopefully, in the weeks to come over, you know, what were all the different dynamics at play with regard to, you know, people taking such offense at Jesus? Why, why was it such a big deal? Why him particularly? And I think as we work through John's gospel, we're going to find it was multi-layered. You had the divine side of the coin, what God had decreed, what he was doing. Um, the sinfulness of man, of course, broadly speaking, that man cannot seek after God apart from the Holy Spirit of God, giving them eyes to see uh, and a heart to submit. Man must be born again in order to uh, exercise saving faith in Christ. And there's a, there's a real sociological reality. Hey, these powerful men are being challenged and they are being put to shame by this random guy who has, no, to their knowledge, no education. He came from an obscure part of that part of the world and he's showing, up, he's showing them up and he's also um, saying that they are subject to him as Lord. All those factors, and I'm sure there's many more that could be said, were integrally related to the response of uh, negativity towards Jesus. That would be my off-the-cuff response to your question. Well, it was a good question. Um, I don't know how good the response was. Any other thoughts before we hit number five? Almost done. Hopefully we'll get done by eight. That's kind of my goal. We'll see. I think, I think we're getting close. Number five. What did Christ reveal about himself in the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? You know, when I started studying the Gospel of John, seriously, I was at the Master's University, and my, um, my New Testament survey class, we had, to, we had to read the whole Gospel of John, and we had to write a commentary on it, start to finish. That was our major assignment. For the um, semester. You had to write a verse-by-verse commentary on the Gospel of John. And when I got to this passage in John 2, I really didn't know what to do with it. Like, first off, like, I thought it was, you know, this is my thinking when I was 20 years old. Didn't know a whole lot about the Bible at this time. But I thought, it was, I thought we weren't supposed to drink alcohol. And here Jesus is turning water into wine. So that's kind of weird. And then what is it really, what's it doing here? Like, it's kind of just inserted here. At the beginning of chapter 2, right before a a monumental event, at the end of chapter 2, when Christ cleanses the temple, how do we make sense of this? Those were thoughts that I had as a young man, just beginning to study God's Word, and would love to hear your thoughts about this particular passage. What do you think is significant about what Christ is revealing about himself at at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? That's rich. Did you guys hear that? Jesus taking something that wasn't there and putting it there himself. I think it shows his power, his um, sovereignty, his lordship over creation. And, and our lives too. And our lives too. 
Right. Man, that's good. Really good. Yeah, in John's Gospel, yeah. That's good thoughts. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, those are those are that's definitely an interesting thought. Um, here's kind of my take on it. You know, it's interesting when when Philip had his little exchange with Nathaniel. Um, Nathaniel says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Okay, well, then Nathanael goes and finds Jesus. And in John 1.50, after Nathanael declares, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, if you believe, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, surely I tell you, you will see greater things than these. Okay, well, do you guys want to know where Nathanael was from? John 21 and verse 2 says that Nathanael was from Cana of Galilee. So I just think it's interesting that Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to show you some greater things. Let's go to your hometown. Let's go to a wedding that we probably all know who the bride and the groom were, or at least had some sort of connection to them because it's Nathanael's hometown. Jesus's family members are there. So there's a mutual connection here. And then, oh, I'm the word that was talked about back at the beginning of John's gospel. Let me show you how I am the word. Let me show you how I'm creator. Let me show you how I'm sovereign Lord over everything by turning this water into wine simply because I can do so for my own glory. And so that this event could be recorded and preserved in scripture for some 2000 years today. That's what I took away from it. I mean, it's, it's so multi-layered. It's so, it's so rich. And I see it again. I talked about the faithfulness of God earlier. It's the faithfulness of Christ right here. Three days later, Nathaniel, I'm going to show you greater things than this. You've already believed in my name. Man, we're just getting out of the train station. We're going to be on an incredible journey together over the course of my ministry. And of course, after he ascends into heaven, um, Nathaniel is going to know him until he goes to be with him in glory. So... That was kind of my thoughts on that passage. I wish I would have known that for my verse-by-verse commentary back in the day. It would have made for a good, um, a good thought. I don't really remember what I wrote. I probably wrote something short and moved on to the next passage. I think it's significant, too, how he changed it to something better. It was, he was willing to do something different. Because most of the time at the wedding, all the good wines at the beginning. Right. And I right. enough wine, and the bad stuff tastes just as good, but... You know, Jesus was like, okay, I'm not only going to give you something you don't have, I'm going to give you good stuff. And for me, it was significant that he was willing to change stuff around than oh, yeah. what was ordinarily done in that time. And I think to your point, remember it was a few weeks ago when Nick preached, he, he talked about just enjoy the grace of God. That was common grace. That was Jesus just blessing these people. Yeah. That's probably the greatest wine that's ever been created. And they noticed it because he was like, wow, who was, where right. Yeah, just, it's just the grace of God, a good, gracious gift right there in the context of a wedding celebration. Very good. No, great thoughts. 
You know, I, I like to eat food. I think about when uh, Jesus is on the shore at the end of the Gospel of John. That, whatever he made there, that, that was the greatest meal that's ever been made. I promise you. That was amazing. So, anyways, that, we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks. Um, but uh, <laughs> number six. This, isn't, this is probably, and I'm glad this is last, because this is pretty much, um, we, only, we only have uh, two more real questions that we're going to cover, because verse 8, verse, or not verse 8, question 8 rather, on page 18, it's, it's a corollary to, ver, or to chapter 6, or chapter 6, question 6, I can't even talk right now, question 6, on page 17, why did Jesus react with such anger? As he cleared the temple, what was the purpose? And then question eight on page 18. This is where I want us to go with this. With this, with this theme that we're going to see unpacked in question six. Question eight, here's what I want us to think about. We're going to cover two together because they really are connected. How can our church demonstrate greater reverence for God? Okay? They're directly connected questions, very important questions for us to consider. But let's start with question six. First and foremost, why did Jesus react with anger as he cleared the temple? And those verses that really describe that account are in 14 through 17 of chapter two. So let's let me do this. I'll read those verses. I'll need a volunteer to read Psalm 69 9, because that's some Old Testament perspective. Michael, thank you. Uh, Psalm 69 9 actually is what was cited by John in this text. It's again Christ fulfilling something in the Old Testament. But um, Malachi 3 1 through 3, uh, who wants to take that passage? Hannah, thank you. And I'll take, I'll take the main text, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It's important, very important to make sure we're all on the same page of what's going on here. Verse verse 14, chapter 2. Let me take it from the top here. And Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Okay, Psalm 69, 9. Very good. So that's the text from John two seventeen that's being cited. Okay, now the Malachi passage. Okay, so um, what is going on in John's text 
with that kind of Old Testament backdrop? What do you see happening? Why is Jesus so mad? I thought it was a sin to get angry. Is it a sin to get angry? Let's start there. Is it possible to be angry and not sin? Yes, it is. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There are times actually when it is sinful not to respond to a situation with anger. There are situations. Now let me say, be careful. You and I are not Jesus. Typically when we get, when we get uh, angry, we cross the line into sin. But it is possible. It is possible to respond appropriately with righteous indignation and glorify God in doing so. We see this here from Christ in the cleansing of the temple. Well, why did he feel the need to cleanse the temple? What's going on there? Disrespecting the temple. How so? What's, what, what is the main offense, would you say? Sin. Sin. Yeah, oh yeah, there's, there's definitely sin going on here. This is... Yeah, that's cool. That's 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 where I was wanting us to go. Okay. The passage says that they turned it into a place of trade. Turned it into a place of trade. That's the key. That's that's really what's the problem here. Okay. Let me let me walk you through a little bit of of what's happening at this point in the narrative. So, whenever the Jewish believers would come in to the temple to celebrate Passover or any number of feasts for that matter, they wanted to go to the temple. They would have to go into the temple and in order to purchase animals to make sacrifices for their families, they would have to buy the animals from the temple. Well, those animals at the temple, you think inflation's bad these days? Inflation was bad back then, too, because they would jack the price up and make make an even greater profit uh, for the merchants who were selling those animals. Well, gets worse. You couldn't just go in there and buy the animals you needed and the animals that your family needed to make sacrifice to God. No, you had to use the special currency that was provided at the temple to buy those animals to make sacrifice. So you had to do an exchange of your currency at the temple. And do you think that it was a one-to-one correlation for what my currency is valued at with their currency? Oh, of course not. There was a massive fee you'd have to pay in order to get the necessary currency to buy the animals you needed, which were already in themselves overpriced. So essentially, you had the Jewish religious leaders and the people who were involved in the, the trade that's going on in the temple. They were really um, taking advantage of these Jewish believers who wanted to come in and, and make their sacrifice and worship God. And Jesus sees this. He sees corruption from the spiritual leadership over the nation of Israel who allowed this to happen, the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God, the ones who were supposed to to know the truth and model righteousness before the people of God, they allowed essentially a Ponzi scheme to take place in their midst. And then you had secular tradesmen in there who were making a profit as well. And they they had no direct connection or tie to Judaism. They were in there just to make a profit. So you've got corrupt spiritual leaders and you have secular pagan merchants in there also trying to fatten their own wallets. That's what made Jesus upset here. Would that be comparable, and I'm going to step on the coffee shops in the churches, you 
I would, yeah, I mean, I would say that's comparable to any church that cares more about either getting themselves rich or trying to appease the people that show up to church through whether it be tickling their ears through what's preached or having a coffee shop or in some places a, a playground in the middle of the uh, foyer or, or wherever <laughs> wherever uh, they would have such a place at their campus. It can be any number of things. Well, I would I would say this: any church, any church, any church that's marked by wanting to make money simply for the sake of making money to get themselves rich, um, whether that be through um, false teaching, whether that be through um, acquiescing to, to just try to get people to come in and so that they can pay, that's certainly a, a church that is I would say under the judgment of God. Such a place that the temple had become in those days, and if we could take it a step further. Any church marked by spiritual leadership that is corrupt and modeling unrighteous behavior, that's, that, type, that type of church, that context is also under God's judgment. Even if on the outside they're flourishing. They may have a lot of money. They may have a lot of followers. But that doesn't mean that they have God's favor because they're not being faithful to his word. Um, you know, I wrote this down, guys. Uh, this just came to me. This, uh, as I was making preparations for tonight. How do we grow in showing reverence for God? This was the second part of the question, and this was question eight. I remember I tied questions six and eight together. How do we grow in reverence for God? Well, I found five ways. This isn't every way possible, but these are five ways that I think a church can grow in their reverence for God. Of course, it starts with the heart. You've got to have a church that's filled with believers. You can do all the externals you want to do and, and it not flow from a genuine heart. And, of course, we know that's not pleasing to God. God wants you to start with the heart. But more often than not, the fruit, the, the overflow of your life stems from the heart. So although it is possible to have a bunch of externals and not have the heart into it, by and large, if your heart's where it needs to be with the Lord, there's going to be evidence and there's going to be fruit that that um, testifies to the state of your heart. And these were five things that came to my mind. If you want this afterwards with the scripture references, I can, I can give them to you so you can look at the verses. But number one, be a church marked by sound doctrine as evidenced by an agreed upon biblically faithful statement of faith. As goes the church's doctrinal statement, so goes the church. If you don't have a church that's rooted and grounded on the authority of Scripture, preaching the truth of God's Word and living it out within the context of that church, that church is going to have a whole host of issues. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10 is the cross-reference I had with that. It talks about the need for not, not being a church that's divided, but being of the same mind, the same purpose, the same intent. Um, number one. Number two, growing for reverence. How do we, how do we show reverence for God and our church? Be a church marked by a biblical leadership structure. And the two key texts for that, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. Um, it is so crucial, as Nick's been teaching on Sunday nights and doing a masterful job of doing so, it's so crucial to ensure that you have a, a biblically rooted church leadership structure. God will bless churches that honor 
him by honoring his word. And that blessing may not be financial. It may not be numerical. It will certainly be spiritual. You'll see sanctification taking place. You'll see serving taking place. Um, You'll see people getting converted. You'll see a joy to reach people with the gospel and a surrounding community. All those things begin, number one, you've got to have your doctrine where it needs to be. And then number two, you've got to have your leadership structure where it needs to be. And number three, a dovetail with the leadership structure. You need to be a church marked by godly leaders. So it's one thing to have a biblical leadership structure, but you've also got to have godly leaders in those structures. You can have the most biblical leadership structure possible, and yet, if you don't have godly men in those leadership roles, you're going to have problems, right? Of course, um, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of Demas? 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas started well, ministered with the Apostle Paul, uh, labored with many of the first century Christians, and then right at the end of Paul's life. You know what happened to Demas? He defected. Demas, who is in love with the world, has deserted me for Thessalonica. He was a man in prominent leadership position. Of course, you better believe the apostles were modeling biblical leadership structures. Demas himself, though, unfortunately proved himself not to be faithful. Number four, showing reverence for God. And let me just say this. um, how do, we, how do we know that these things increase reverence for God? It's tied to Scripture. You've got to show reverence for God's Word in order to properly show reverence for God. You can't have one without the other. Reverence for God is manifested through reverence for His Word and obedient to His Word, which, which really gets to the epicenter of number four. Be a church that practices church discipline and possesses accountability structures for spiritual leadership and laypersons. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, and 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13 are the church discipline passages. Um, and then accountability structures, Hebrews 13, 17, that's leadership accountabilities. Your spiritual leaders are just as accountable to God's word and to the congregation as any layperson. Layperson, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. And then lastly, last practical way that came to my mind as rooted in Scripture is be a church that's willing to take a stand against anything in the culture that directly contradicts biblical Christianity. You know, we live in a day that's marred by LGBTQIA, um, social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, um, the usurping of the, the family structure that we see rooted and grounded in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. My friends, to be faithful to Scripture, we need to be proactive and letting our community and our friends and our families know, and by extension, of course, as much as we have opportunity, the world to know God's word is the authority of our church and our lives. And we're going to do whatever it takes to be faithful to that word. Why? Because we love God. And we know that human flourishing is maximally accomplished when a person is faithful to Scripture. If we apply Scripture faithfully to our lives, God will bless us spiritually. We will be able to live, move, and have our being in a way that we were intended to.
one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Sure. Sexually, even, you know, like things that we do throughout the day. Yeah, what you put in your mind, what you listen to. Mind, watching, sure. Whatever. Not just sexually, but everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's just God has been so gracious to give mankind a book that is sufficient for every good work. Sufficient for leading us to a true knowledge with Him through faith in Christ if we would only obey, if we would only submit, if we would only trust His Word by faith, oh, how our lives, our churches, and our culture would be different. No question. No question. Well, again, um, I don't think I gave the last text there. It's Acts 5, 27 to 42 with number 5. So if you're writing um, down those scripture references, we don't have time to go there tonight, but would encourage you to read those texts. If you have any questions about them, I'm always available to answer those questions. Uh, last closing thought before we close in prayer and be dismissed. Off the cuff here, what have we seen in John 1 and 2 so far? What have we seen about what has stood out to you about Christ? Come and see, is what Philip told Nathaniel. Come and see Christ. We've seen him displayed in so many wonderful ways already. And we're only through two chapters of John's gospel. But what stood out to you most? Would love to hear some feedback before we close in prayer. And that's why it's so important to read the Word, guys. Um, you'll find that the more you read Scripture, the more your faith will be enlarged, the more joy you'll have in your Christian life, the more ability you'll have to resist temptation because you're filling your mind with truth, like what Amy was talking about just a few moments ago. Um, seeing yourself in light of Scripture in terms of why God's created you, what your purpose is, how He calls you to live as a husband or a wife or a coworker or a son or daughter. God's word is so incredible, provides us with so much insight that is for our good and for his glory. Any other thoughts about Christ that anyone would like to share before we close in prayer? I would just say this by way of um, close, if no one has anything else to say. Jesus, his greatest desire, just like it is God the Father's and just like it is God the Holy Spirit. His greatest desire is to put himself on display for all of creation to see. As um, 
a theologian put it, creation is the theater upon which the glory of God is made manifest. It's why God created everything. To put himself on display, and then we, as his people, we're the benefactors of that glory. We get to know him and enjoy him forever. We get to see him work, both in creation and in our own spiritual lives. So when you read the Gospel of John, as you meditate on the person of Christ, the works of Christ, look for his glory. And when you see his glory in the scripture, celebrate that glory. Praise God for his glory and for the work he's done in the past, in the present, and of course what he's promised to do in the future. One day in which he'll establish the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're in Christ, you'll dwell therein forever and ever. Really appreciate you guys being here tonight. Was encouraged by the group discussion. Lord willing, we'll cover the third chapter next week and hope to have another good time in the word of God together. So hope you have a blessed week. Let me close in prayer and then uh, feel free to stay after as long as you want for fellowship. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to gather here tonight with other brothers and sisters in Christ and people of all different age groups. And God, what a thought it is to consider that you will not share your glory with another, that you are holy, 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 and that you care about the reverence of your people, both in our individual lives and in the local church context. And Father, that you have made so clear in creation and in scripture that you exist and that man is accountable to you. I pray that we would be humbled by these truths, just like John the Baptist modeled, humility. That we would recognize our sinfulness, but even greater than our sin, Father, that we would see that your grace and mercy and love is able to overcome all of our transgressions and all of our unrighteousness so that through Christ, we can be treated as if we had lived his perfect life because on the cross you treated Christ as if he had lived our lives of sin. Father, I pray that you would enlarge every person's faith in this room. Father, motivate all of us to study your word, to, to pray, to fellowship with other believers, to do anything in our power to draw ever more close to you. And Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen our love for one another that we would not forsake the gathering together, that we would stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that this would be a means of doing that on a weekly basis, and that we would stay connected outside of these formal times of study. I pray for safe travels for every family who's represented here tonight. I pray for your blessing upon them in their workplace and in their families and in their relationships throughout the rest of this week. And even now, God, as we prepare for Sunday, the pinnacle of each week, Lord, would we be preparing to worship you again with your people in a way that's pleasing in your sight, that your name might be magnified through us and that we would go out and be your salt and light before a watching world as we have opportunities to do so. We commit the rest of this evening to you. Pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.